We began a series of studies in the book of Colossians last Lord's Day. We made some introductory remarks concerning a number of different things. We said that this was one of the prison epistles. It was one of 13 epistles in the New Testament written by Paul. But it's one of several written from jail. And the epistle to the Colossians is an epistle that deals with four basic things. Chapter 1, the Christian and his Christ. Chapter 2, the Christian and his creed. Chapter 3, the Christian and his character. And chapter 4, the Christian and his career. In introducing this series of messages, we talked about the pen man. That's the Apostle Paul himself said some things about him, about his ministry. Then we talked about the place. Colossae itself was one of a trio of cities, along with Hierapolis and Laodicea. Uh, There were Christians in those three locations. The actual town, the city of Colossae, was about 125 miles southeast of Ephesus, and it was a coastal city. It was a very prosperous place. It was quite the metropolis with a mix of races there, typical of some of the cities in the Roman Empire of the time. It was a city, therefore, of many and varied religions, full of different philosophies and religious zealots and teachers of various kinds. It was also a very wicked place. The licentious and ungodly lifestyle of the Romans is legendary. And you can read in your history books about the awful sins that they were involved in. Uh, That would have been the case in Colossae as well. Would have presented many challenges to Christians living there and working there. It was also a large Jewish colony, so you had that element to deal with as well. Uh, There was a large synagogue in the city, and people who were obvious haters of the gospel of Christ. But the the Christian church there was very closely connected with its sister congregation in Laodicea. I know that Laodicea doesn't get a very good press in the New Testament because we often think of it because of what's written about it in Revelation chapter 3. But even if you read between the lines, you'll find that Laodicea was a, a place of great gospel light and yet they had gone away from that light and needed to repent, and needed to be restored. We talked about the people in Colossae, those who made up that congregation, and we notice that in the book of Acts, the Colossians are not mentioned. But Paul did spend three years at Ephesus, and there was obviously an outgrowth of that work into other areas, including Colossae. By the way, if you study Ephesians, Alongside Colossians, you'll see great similarities. A lot of the material in Ephesians is repeated largely in Colossians. But there's one man who was converted in that city, and he was trained apparently in Ephesus for the work of the gospel, and his name is Epaphras. He's a very prominent man in the epistle. You'll see him mentioned in the first chapter And in the fourth chapter, he was not only a faithful minister, but he was a man of prayer. 
And it is believed by many that he actually went back to his native town, which was Colossae, to preach the gospel there. And that's why Paul talked about that which they had heard even of Epaphras. He had preached the truth to them. You see this in chapter 1 verse 7. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. So Epaphras was used of God in Colossae, you might say, just as much as the Apostle Paul. It was a mission church. It was a church that was established out of the mother congregation at Ephesus. And I made the point last time, I emphasize it again, how we would love to see such a situation again in our day. That churches would become mothers of other churches. That they would have daughters all over the place because of the expansion of the gospel witness. Now concerning the epistle, we ended up last time talking about the problem that Paul was addressing in this epistle. Epaphras apparently visited Paul when he was in jail and he told the apostle that some new teachings had infiltrated the Colossian church. And as a result of that, the work was in great peril. It was in great danger even of being destroyed. And that's certainly clear from some of the things that Paul wrote, especially in chapter 2. The chief heresy being promoted in Colossae denied both the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ as the head of the church. And this is why you see Paul emphasizing so much the head. He talks about those who did not hold the head. He talks in chapter 1 verse 18 about Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. And there's so much here about the headship of our Lord, about His supremacy, that in all things He might have the preeminence, is the statement that He employs in verse 18 of chapter 1. That in all things, He, Christ, might have the preeminence, that He might be exalted, that He might be lifted up. The problem was that the Colossians were being infiltrated by people who were promoting doctrines that denied the sufficiency of Christ. You could be saved some other way. Just like today, there are men who preach another gospel or other gospels. And the great heresy that was most notable in Colossae was Gnosticism, which was, as I suggested last time, a mixture of Eastern mysticism and Jewish legalism. Their teaching, the Gnostic teaching, undermined the teachings of the gospel and the very foundation of the Christian faith. Not least, the person of Christ was under attack, while at the same time, immorality and sensuality were promoted. And then you had the narrow legalism of Jewish ritualism, the dietary laws, fasting, and the keeping of holy days, all of which Paul mentions in the epistle. So these things had to be corrected. And that's part of the reason that Paul wrote to the Colossians. It was an epistle largely of correction, but also of reiterating gospel truth. 
And that's how you counteract falsehoods. That's how you cause people to be proof against false teaching. By teaching them the truth. So that they imbibe the truth. And they reject false teachings. Just like the Colossians today, you and I need to know what we believe. And we need to know also why we believe it. It's not going to be good enough to just say, well, in our church we do this. And people say, well, why do you do that in your church? Well, I don't know. The pastor tells us that's what we're to do, so that's what we do. I hope that's not the case. I hope hope that's not the way it is with you. But you'll be ready to give an answer why it is that you believe what you believe. Why it is that we practice what we do. Why it is that we don't practice many of the things that we don't practice. But from there I want to go further tonight and speak a little more about this epistle itself. And I want to deal with two things. Uh, First of those is the purpose of the correspondence. The real reason, which I've already hinted at why Paul wrote. And also the particulars of the contents. So let's think about the first of those. The purpose of the correspondence. There's always a reason why you write a letter. I don't know if you're in the habit of writing letters. That seems to be a kind of a lost art in the day in which we live. I suppose it's all email now, practically. Uh, But it used to be that letters were the way that people communicated. And this is the way it was for Paul. He wanted to communicate something to the Colossians, so he wrote them a letter. It's called an epistle. It simply means a letter. And the main thrust of this letter was the all-sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The two things that were under attack. The all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus. Look at chapter 3 of Colossians and verse 11. At the end of the verse, Paul simply says, But Christ is all, and in all. Christ is all, and in all. In other words, Christ is sufficient. As a little booklet that was written some years ago by Dr. Alan Kearns suggested, Christ is the answer. Christ is all. And this is the message that he wanted to get across to the Colossians. Christ is sufficient. It has rightly been said that the answer to every heresy, no matter what it is, is a sound Christology. If you have the doctrine of Christ correct, then you will be able to deal with every heresy that comes along. So this is what Paul did. He started off by establishing the truth regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say he was writing to these people as if they didn't know anything. Of course, that was not the truth. That was not the case. The Colossians had been well taught. I've already mentioned this. That in chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul mentioned the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit. So the gospel had gone to work in Colossae. People there had learned the truth. 
They'd learned it, he said in verse 7 of chapter 1, of this man Epaphras, who was a faithful minister. But yet Paul speaks here, in a sense, as if he were writing to people who didn't know anything. And I think it's always good to do that, not to take anything for granted as a preacher. You see, sometimes we think when we're preaching, everybody knows this already. They're already familiar with this. Now that may be true of some. In fact, it might even be true of most. But it may not be true of all. And even if it were true of all, it's always good to have the truth reinforced in your heart. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. That's the biblical way. Remember how Peter, when he was writing to his hearers, he said, I'm going to write this to you basically in modern language. I'm going to write this to you even though you're already established in the present truth. You already know this. But I'm going to remind you of it again. And so Paul starts off the epistle here by establishing the truth regarding Christ. Who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? Look at chapter 1 from verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God? The firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created. All things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That means by him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now there's a lot in there. But basically, what Paul is saying is, Christ is God. He's the image of the invisible God. Similar words to what he wrote to the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, Paul commences, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is Jesus Christ? He's God. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator. This is the teaching of John chapter 1. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ created all things. Colossians 1 verse 16 tells us that. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth. Jesus Christ is the Creator. And He's the head of the church. I have news for the poor benighted Roman Catholics. The Pope is not the head of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sole King and the only head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. But more than this, Paul teaches that he is this God, this creator, this head of the church, our redeemer and our saviour. And really you have implied there the humanity of Christ, because right there in verse 14, 
just before he launches into this polemic about the deity of Christ, he says in chapter 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Oh, here's the God-man. Here is one who is God, who sits on the right hand of the majesty and high, who's the great creator, who's the head of the church, but he became flesh and dwelt among us, lived our life, died our death. And Paul goes on to speak of that from verse 20 of chapter 1. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Who is he? He's God. He's the Creator, He's the Head of the Church, but He's also our Redeemer and our Saviour. What has He done? He's redeemed us by His blood. He has made peace for us who were enemies with God. He has reconciled us to God by His death, by His blood. Again, who is He? Look at chapter 2, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness. That word there is the Greek word pleroma. It's a word that's used several times to represent completeness in this epistle. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is a huge statement of theology. You think about a body. That's the humanity of Christ. Think about him being born in Bethlehem as a little baby, a span long. And yet in him there dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead in that body. That's what's being said here. It's amazing. And what has he done? Chapter 2 from verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, that's a reference to God's law, which condemned us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross, is a great victor. Oh, what has he done? He has purchased salvation for his people. He has overcome the powers of hell on their behalf. So the great central theme of Colossians is the person of Jesus Christ and that relationship which he sustains to his people. Paul makes a statement which is one of pure theology. But you will notice as well as that, he applies the truth to the Colossians. He applies the truth. What has it got to do with them? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And let me just say something about that. I've known some people within the Reformed community, shall I say, broadly speaking, who have a problem with the terminology receiving Christ. 
or accepting Christ. And they've even gone so far as to say, some of them, that you don't accept Christ, you don't receive Christ. Well, I beg to differ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. There are those who have rejected Christ, there are those who have received Christ. And what's the promise of John 1 verse 12? To as many as received Him. To them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. I don't have any problem whatsoever telling sinners that they need to receive Christ. They need to accept His salvation in order to come into the possession of it. But what is Paul saying here? As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's what happened when you got converted, that's what happened when you got saved, so walk ye in Him. See, when you become a Christian, it makes a difference in the way that you live. That's a message, again, that's missing from many a pulpit. There are those who will tell people just to come to Christ, and then after that, there's no responsibility to live for the Lord. But of course, the Bible teaches not only justification through Christ, but sanctification through Christ. You are to walk in the truth that you profess to believe. No, it's not enough to have doctrine in your head. It's not, en- not enough just to learn definitions and be able to rabbit things off like a parrot. I'm all for teaching the children and catechizing the children and making them learn passages of Scripture. I did that myself as a child and I'm thankful for it. But you can have all that without knowing Christ. You can have all this stuff in your head and as the old preacher said, you've missed it by 12 inches because it's never reached your heart. It's not enough just to learn off proof texts in order to defend the faith. But the truth has to get deep down into our souls. The Lord talked about letting these sayings deep down into your ears. Let the truth get into your heart and soul so that you live every day in the light of what you believe. You say you believe this Therefore, live like this. That's what Paul is saying. You Colossians, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught. Again, reiterating what I said a few minutes ago, they had been taught. But Paul's teaching them again. We recall what James said in James chapter 1. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. How vital this is. So the purpose of Paul's correspondence is to establish again these great truths about Christ, but also to emphasize the need for the Colossians to imbibe the truth and to walk in the truth. But let's look at the second thing here. 
And it is really in the form of a great outline. When I say great, I mean large. You may think it's great or it's not great, but it's fairly sizable, the outline. Even though we're only dealing with four chapters. The way I've divided them up here, it's quite detailed. But I trust that you'll bear with me and you'll be blessed through the contents. Let's look at the particulars of the contents of Colossians. I could say, first of all, there's a simple two-fold division of the book that you can employ. Very easy. The first two chapters, doctrinal. The second two chapters, practical. That's it. Chapters 1 and 2, doctrine. Chapters 3 and 4, practice. So you read the book of Colossians with that in mind. The first two chapters are filled with doctrine. And then you have the outworking of that doctrine in practical Christian living. Now, we can further divide those two, the doctrinal and practical, into several subsections, I would call them. There are at least four of them. The Christian and his Christ. Already given you this outline, but I'm giving it to you again. The Christian and his Christ, chapter 1. The Christian and his creed, chapter 2. The Christian and his character, from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 1. And then the Christian and his career, or you could say the Christian and his conduct. So thinking about these in in terms of subsections, we can talk about the Christian and his Christ. In chapter 1, There is a description of the truth about Christ. I've already been referring to it. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator. He's the head of the church. He's the saviour and the redeemer. Here is a tremendous opening statement of doctrine. Now let let me just emphasize this. I think it's interesting that when Paul begins talking to the Colossians, he doesn't just launch immediately into a tirade against heretics and false teachers. You might expect him to do that. He's heard from Epaphras, Paul, there's great problems in Colossae, potentially. There are false teachers there. There are people telling the congregation there, this, 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 and this. It's false. And you might expect that Paul is immediately stirred, he's inflamed, and he starts writing and just launches forth into a great tirade against false teachers. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He begins with a word of encouragement to the saints. I think it was F.B. Meyer, a great preacher, contemporary of Spurgeon, who said toward the end of his ministry as an old man, that if he had his ministry to conduct over again, He would have emphasized far more the subject of encouragement. God's people need to be encouraged. They need to be helped and built up in the faith. And this is what Paul does here. He starts out verses 1 through 11 in chapter 1 with a word of encouragement. You'll notice here his praise of them. Says some nice things about them. Tells them that he had heard of their faith, verse 4, chapter 1. Their faith in Christ Jesus. 
and of the love that they had to all the saints. He'd heard about that. And he, he tells them from verse 9 that since the day he had heard all about their faith and their love, he had not ceased to pray for them and to desire God's best for them. That's really a summation of the first 11 verses. He's praying that the Lord would bless them and help them. What a wonderful word of encouragement. You have his praise of them and his prayers for them. But as well as a word of encouragement to the saints, Paul sets forth a witness in exaltation of the Savior from verse 12 to verse 29 of chapter 1. Again, this encompasses what we talked about a few minutes ago. All those great truths about the Savior. He spoke about their deliverance by Jesus Christ. That they had been redeemed by His blood. That they had been delivered from the power of darkness. Verse 13 of chapter 1. That they had been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son, which in the margin is the Son of His love. Paul is encouraging them. Here he's giving a witness in exaltation of the Savior. The deliverance by Jesus Christ that they had enjoyed. And then from verse 15 to verse 19, he talks about the deity of Jesus Christ. We'll not cover that ground again, but we know that that's what he was talking about there. The fact that Jesus Christ is God. As well as the deliverance by Jesus Christ and the deity of Jesus Christ. He refers to the death of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 verse 20 through to 22. He then mentions the demand of Jesus Christ. Which in verse 23 is that they not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And then there's the declaration of Jesus Christ. From verse 24 down to verse 29. And Paul there speaks about his own ministry. How that he spent that ministry expounding the mystery of Christ. He said in verse 28, Christ is the one whom we preach. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Paul's talking about his ministry and what that ministry involved. Preaching, warning people, and teaching people the truth. So therefore, Paul had a ministry that was like a double-barreled shotgun, if you like. In one barrel, he's dealing with the, the sinners. And in the other one is dealing with the saints, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. So this is the Christian and his Christ, a description of the truth about Christ. Chapter 1 is all about that. Chapter 2 contains detail about the Christian and his creed. And here is not merely a description of the truth about Christ, but a defense of the truth about Christ. There was another place where Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. He said that when he wrote to the Philippians. And therefore, it is not enough just to preach the gospel. We must defend the gospel against all error. 
That's one thing I always appreciated about my pastor in my home church. If some rascal popped his head above the parapet and started saying things about the Lord Jesus Christ that were blasphemous and untrue, he would deal with it. He would preach against it. He would write articles. He would print those articles in the Revivalist magazine. Keeping people informed as to what the truth was. A defense of the truth about Christ. And Paul was a defender of the faith. I want you to see here that in speaking of the Christian and his creed, he speaks, he writes of the life we must exhibit. See here from chapter 2 verse 1 down to verse 7. He shows forth the desire that he has for the people of God to live in a certain way. He doesn't want them to be led astray by heresies. See this in verse 4 of chapter 2. This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, lead you astray. I don't want that to happen. But I want to help you by teaching you the truth. And again, you notice in verse 5 of chapter 2, he's referring to the fact he's not able to be with them in the church. He can't actually be there in person. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And then he gives this exhortation. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him. Make sure you have deep roots in the faith, that you're grounded. That's what it means, rooted and built up in him. My father used to refer to a certain poor fellow who never seemed to really make much of his Christian life. He never really seemed to go on with the Lord too well. He was always struggling. My dad used to say of him, he needs to get away home and get grounded. In other words, he needs to spend some time in the Word. He needs to start to learn the faith that he might live it out. The life we must exhibit. But then there's the Lord we must exalt. In chapter 2 from verse 9 to verse 15. It begins with that wonderful statement. That in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But it goes on to speak of Christ in his person. It speaks of Christ in his position. And it speaks of Christ in his passion this is what the Lord did at the cross you see in verse 14 he talks about the handwriting of ordinances the, the, it's really referring to the law of God that condemned us he took that and he nailed it to his cross he took it out of the way he removed the condemnation of the law and at the same time he overcame the devil and the minions of hell. As a great victor he made a show of them openly. Just like a Roman general would do after victory in battle. Triumphing over them in it. There's the Lord that we must exalt. His person, his position as the victor and his passion. But as well as this he speaks in chapter 2 
in talking about the Christian and his creed, about the lies we must expose. What are those lies? Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. Beware. Back in the old country, as they say, if we ever had to go around houses putting some leaflets through the doors for various causes, we had to be really careful about people and their dogs. And people who were sensible and people who were gracious, if they had a dog that was sort of prone to bite people, they would put on the gate in big letters, Beware of the dog. Those are the houses I would pass by and go to the next house if I was giving out any leaflets and someone else could do that if they wanted to and take the risk to be bitten by a dog. I'm allergic to dog bites. Beware of the dog. Look at this. Chapter 2 verse 8. Beware. Lest any man spoil you. It's a warning. It's a red flag. Paul is saying to the people there in that church, you need to watch out. Lest any man, doesn't matter who he is, spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. There are these false teachers out there, and we have to expose their lies. He refers to them here as teaching certain philosophy and vain deceit. What's deceit? Well, it's the same thing as lies. When you deceive someone, pull the wool of their eyes, it's the same thing as lying to them. It's a form of lying. But it goes on from verse 16 down to verse 23 to flesh this out further. Notice how he says in verse 16, Let no man, there it is again, doesn't matter who he is, he says in verse number 8, any man, he says in verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. He's talking about the ceremonial law of Israel. He's not talking about the weekly Sabbath. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the law the ceremonial law which is abrogated in Christ. And verse 17 makes that clear. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Whenever you see a shadow, you know that there's something that's causing that shadow. Something coming to, between the light and the ground. It casts a shadow. So when you are wanting to see what the actual substance is, you follow the shadow until you find the substance. When you've done that, you don't think about the shadow anymore, you think about the substance. Those who are living under the ceremonial law are still living in the shadow. And I certainly would apply that to those who call themselves, in many instances, messianic Christians. You need to watch out for people like that. They worship on Saturday. They don't worship on the Lord's Day. They'll tell you that the Lord's Day was established by the Pope. That's what the Seventh-day Adventists teach as well. But that's not true. The Apostle Paul didn't do what he did on the Sabbath day, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week because of the Pope. He did it because the Lord Jesus rose from the dead on that day. But there are people who have never moved on from the Old Testament. They meet on Saturday. They are 
in a sense like those that Paul is referring to in Colossians chapter 2. They're living in the shadow. They haven't yet come to the substance. There are folks I know, I remember meeting one in a certain line of business and she went to one of these messianic congregations so called. And I know I'm generalizing here, they may not all be like this, but many of them are. And uh, she was telling me how that her church was on Saturday. And immediately the red flags went up for me. But she went on to tell me that when they have the various feasts that are held in Judaism, they have them in, in their church. They have the Passover. And they have certain other feasts that are in the Old Testament. And I said to her, well, why would you have the Passover? Because 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. It's not the feast of Passover, it's the New Testament feast following Christ, serving Him. I don't remember what she said. But listen, there are lies that have to be exposed. And notice the key to this all. He says again in verse 18, same thing that he said basically in verse number 8. Beware lest anyone spoil you. Here in verse 18, let no man beguile you. The serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, led her astray. Of your reward, in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, capital H, Christ, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. And he goes on to show the incongruity of following Christ and following these types of religions. Why would you be subject to ordinances? Verse 20. Verse 21. Taste, touch not, taste not, handle not. Which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. This is stuff that's made up out of people's own hearts. They're not worshipping God according to His Word, but according to how they themselves have decreed it should be. Here we have a defense of the truth about Christ and how there's a life we must exhibit, there's a Lord we must exalt, and there are lies that we must expose. The third thing is the Christian and his character. This is in chapter 3, but it goes all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1. Here is mention of a demonstration of the truth about Christ. And it's actually the practical demonstration in the lives of God's people of that which they profess. You say that you believe a certain way, then you are to live in a certain way. How is that? We look at chapter 3 verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ. And that little word if really has the sense of since. It could just as easily be written that way. Since ye then. So that there's no question about it. It's not, you know, maybe you are or maybe you aren't if you're risen with Christ. No, it's since you are. Since you are risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above 
where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection, which really means your mind, on things above, not on things on the earth. And someone will say, well, now, you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Personally, I've never met anyone like that in my entire life. I've never met anyone who was so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly use. Can we really be heavenly minded enough? Can we think enough about heaven? Because the more we think about the things above, the better we will live on the earth. That's Paul's argument here. Since you've been risen with Christ, you're a new creature in Christ, you're to be seeking those things which are above, the kingdom of God. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. That's where your mind is to be. That's where your focus is to be. Upon the Savior. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. What is it that you love more than anything else? The psalmist could say, There is none that I desire beside thee. His mind was fixed on heavenly things. The Christian must have holiness in the heart. And chapter 3 verses 1 through 11 deals with that subject. Talks of it putting to death sin. Notice how it's put here in verse 5 of chapter 3. Mortify. Now that's a word from which we get mortician. You know what a mortician is? It's a man who deals with death. So mortify. Therefore, your members, that means put them to death. Now, what does that mean? What are your members, your hands, your feet, the various parts of your body? The Lord is not telling us here to mutilate our bodies. What he's really saying is, the members of your body are those things you commit sins with. And so you're to put them to death. That's why the Lord said on one occasion, if the right hand offend thee, cut it off. If your eye offend you, pluck it out. He didn't mean that people were to literally cut their hands off or pluck, pluck their eyes out. He's talking spiritually. And so is Paul here. Put to death your members which are upon the earth. Notice how he describes them. Fornication. Uncleanness. Inordinate affection. Evil concupiscence. And covetousness which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these. So here you have this thought of putting off the old clothing and putting on the new clothing. Putting off anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy communication, verse 8. Don't be telling lies, verse 9. You're to be living as a new creature. Holiness in the heart. But then, there's also in the Christian and his character, a demonstration of the truth about Christ, in that there's harmony in the church. See, Paul is not just referring to a group of individuals, but he's referring to a congregation. And in chapter 3, from verse 12 down to verse 17, he gives them certain directives as to what they're to do. You're to put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, 
long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity. It means love, which is the bond of perfectness. We're to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. We're to be thankful, verse 15. We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom. We're to let that permeate our praise. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace to your hearts to the Lord. This is all stuff that's done in the congregation. He's talking here about harmony in the church. But that's, that's not the only place where you live as a Christian. Because there is to be honor in the home. See from verse 18. He speaks as he does in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6 really is repeated here in a sense in these words in Colossians. He talks to the wives. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And then husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And then children, obey your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And then there's a word for the fathers, the parents, and then servants. And finally in verse 1 of chapter 4, masters. Every relationship that takes place, especially in the home, is to be done with honor for the Lord. And of course he deals with honesty in the workplace. That's another outworking of the Christian on this character. Honesty in the workplace. See this? In verse 22, Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. Oh, here's the boss coming, we better clean this up. When it's a job that you were supposed to do anyway. But in singleness of heart fearing God, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. When you go to your workplace, you do your work as if the Lord is the foreman, the Lord is the boss. That's how we're to view those who are set over us. Not that they are God. Of course they're not. But we're to work in such a way as we're doing it unto the Lord. This is practical teaching. And masters are to do the right thing by their servants. Chapter 4 verse 1. Because they themselves have a master in heaven. This is the outworking of the Christian and his character. All dealt with by Paul in Colossians. We'll come back to that. And then finally there's the Christian and his conduct or the Christian and his career. The apostle in this instance is speaking in chapter 4 about a dedication to the truth about Christ. There is an exhortation to faithfulness. And there is an exemplification of faithfulness. In the work of Christ. In other words, an example that's given. Look at the exhortation to faithfulness. In verses 2 through 4 of chapter 4, there's reference made to faithfulness and supplication. Well, what a word this is. Continue in prayer. Just keep on praying. Don't you feel like quitting sometimes? Don't you feel sometimes, well, I don't know if the Lord even hears my prayers or if it does any good at all. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. And Paul said, don't forget about little old me, the preacher, with all praying also for us 
that God would open unto us a door of utterance, that the Lord would create opportunities for me in ministry to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. I'm in jail right now. My ministry is curtailed. I can't preach the way I would have preached. But I want you to pray for me that the Lord will give me a door of utterance, that He'll open up doors to me. Because I want to make it manifest as I ought to speak. That's faithfulness and supplication. There's plenty for us to pray about as Christians. But not only is there faithfulness in supplication for the Christian, there's faithfulness in society. Chapter 4, verse 5. See, we don't live in church, we live in the world. We're not to be Sunday Christians. We're to be everyday Christians. How? Walk in wisdom. Walk wisely, it means, toward them that are without. Redeeming or buying back the time. Oh, how we need to walk in wisdom toward those that are on the outside. People who are not Christians. People who see us, however, from day to day. They see our reactions. They see our attitudes. They hear our speech. And they make judgments about us based upon that. And they're going to say one of two things. There's a person who's a consistent Christian or there's a hypocrite. It's going to be one or the other. Here's somebody who's living for the Lord. Here's somebody who's not living for the Lord. Walk in wisdom, Paul says to the Colossians, toward them that are without. They're not part of the church. They're not part of the witness in Colossae. They don't belong to your congregation. But you're to walk in wisdom toward them. You're to live in front of them. You're to be a testimony to them. That leads on in verse 6 to faithfulness in speech. What a word this is. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. This is a really hard one, isn't it? Because as I think it was John Blanchard said, the tongue is in a very wet place and it slips so very easily. And we say the wrong thing. And how often could I wish that I could put my hand out and just grab the words and put them back into my mouth again. But it's too late. I've already said it. Let your speech be always with grace in our dealings with other people. We don't have to speak in a nasty way. Our speech can be with grace, seasoned with salt. I must confess, I like salt in my food. I don't like bland food. I like salt. I've had people say to me, oh, you shouldn't be using salt like that. Oh, well, the Lord Jesus said salt is good, so... Jesus said salt is good. It's good enough for me. And if the salt have lost its savour, wherewith is it to be salted? No, salt can go bad and it's of no use anymore. And here he says your speech is to be seasoned with salt. Well, what does salt do? It purifies. Salt is a purifier. In the old days they used to pack meat for a long journey on a ship. The pilgrim fathers did that. They packed meat in barrels with, filled with salt. Because the salt acted as a purifier. It 
kept the meat from being destroyed. That's how our speech can be. That you may know how you ought to answer every man. And sometimes the easiest thing to do when someone strikes is to strike right back. That's the easiest thing to do in the world. But is it the right thing? Oh, how we need the Lord to get a, get a hold of our tongues. Faithfulness in speech. And then faithfulness in service. Look at chapter 4 from verse 7 all the way down to verse 18. There are a lot of things here about a lot of different people. And we haven't got time tonight to deal with all of this. But there are certain individuals that Paul highlights, like Tychicus. And he describes him in verse 7 as a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant. In verse 9, he talks about Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. And he gives a shout out, if you like, to Aristarchus and Marcus. And Jesus would be the name Joshua, which is called Justice. And he says in verse 11, These are only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Isn't that good? People that were a comfort, the Apostle Paul, they helped him. They encouraged him. And then there's Epaphras again. He's a servant of Christ, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Verse 13 says, He has a great zeal for you and for the people in Laodicea and Herapolis. And then there's Luke, the beloved physician, who's a doctor, and Demas, and the brethren in Laodicea, and Nymphos, and the church in his house. And Archippus, in verse 17, is to take heed to the ministry that he had received in the Lord, that he fulfill it. Faithfulness in service. A number of examples are given here of those that are faithful servants of God, dedicated to the service of Christ. Are we faithful servants of God? Are we seeking to comfort one another in the church? Are we seeking to be dedicated to the service of the Lord Jesus, looking for that day when we will stand before Him and hear those words, Well done. Well done. Thy good and faithful servant. I want to hear that, don't you? May the Lord help us. We need His help. We need His help every day, just like the Colossians did. And I pray that as we study this epistle, that the Lord will help us to learn the lessons that can be put into practice in our own lives for the honour and glory of Christ and for the benefit and blessing of others.